Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. If you would open your Bibles, fellow students, to 2 Samuel 20. During the Revolutionary War, 1776, a British spy appeared at the headquarters of the Hessian commander, Colonel Johann Rall, carrying an urgent message. His message was General George Washington and his Continental Army had secretly crossed the Delaware that morning and were advancing rapidly on Trenton, New Jersey, where the Hessians were camped. The spy was denied an audience with the commander and instead wrote the message on a piece of paper. A porter took the note into the Hessian colonel, but because Rawl was involved in a poker game, he stuffed the unread note into his pocket. When the guards at the Hessian camp began firing their muskets in a futile attempt to stop Washington's army, Rawl was still playing cards. The entire Hessian army was captured. This was George Washington's first major victory of the Revolutionary War. Clearly, if you don't stay alert, you will lose the battle. We're going to look at David's life, another chapter. Remember, about age 50, David had one of these decision points in life where he decided, uh, contrary to God's will and common sense, to commit adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. David confesses his sin. God forgives his sin. However, as you recall, God pronounced disciplinary judgment on David's life as a consequence. As a result... From age 50 to age 70, the last 20 years of David's life are heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. He is forgiven. He is restored to fellowship with God, but the consequences of his sin follow him. His oldest son rapes his daughter Tamar, and he is in turn murdered by David's third son. This third son, Absalom, stages a revolt, tries to take over the kingdom and kill him. His third son is murdered by the commanding general of David's army, Joab. Rob is going to show you kind of a map of what this battle zone looked like. Um, David flees across the Jordan River to the east side, northeast, about 25 miles, to the city of Mahanaim. That's where Jacob met the angel when he came back from Laban. The nation's involved in a civil war, uh, the forest of Ephraim. There's 20,000 lives that are lost because of one adultery. Now, that's an expensive sin. Is sin expensive? By the way, none of us really understand the price until we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Then we understand the price tag of sin. Now, contrary to a direct order, David's own general, Joab, kills his son, Absalom, and ends the battle. The war is over, but there's a major problem. There is no king in the land of Israel. David is east of the Jordan, and Absalom is dead. The nation finally decides that maybe we need to bring King David back. He's been a reasonable king for the last probably 20 years. Uh, So they're going to bring the king back across the Jordan, 
and we're going to see some childish behavior break out here. If you go to chapter 19, verse 41, 2 Samuel 19, 41, And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all of David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. We've got a little conflict here. The men of Judah, the men of Israel. Because the king is a close relative to us. Why are you so angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and says, We have ten parts in the king, therefore we have more claim on David than you. Why do you treat us with such contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. Here's the principle. God doesn't play favorites. All God's children have equal access to the king of kings. God does not play favorites. All of God's children have equal access to the king of kings. So the tribe of Judah has helped David cross the Jordan River, and they're escorting him back on the way to Jerusalem. They are intercepted by the ten northern tribes of Israel. Remember, Judah is the one tribe in the south, and the other ten are north. And they tell the king that the tribe of Judah has stolen the king away from them. And Judah says, well, he's a relative of ours. He's from the tribe of Judah. King David is from the tribe of Judah. And therefore, we deserve more access because he's blood, right? He's a close relative. And the northern tribes say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We deserve more access because there's 10 of us and two of you, right? So us 10 kids deserve more access to dad than the two of you. You're just redheaded stepchildren, right? The northern tribes say, we're the first ones who recommended that David be restored back, right? So stop whining. So this, is, this family feud is degenerating pretty quick into bickering and pettiness. You know how it is when your children and your grandchildren are somewhat unattended? How do they behave? Just like mom and dad did when they were kids, right? That's, that's how it is. So they're jockeying for position. These tribes are trying to be David's favorite. They want to get the inside track, and this is going to end pretty badly. Of course, the application for us is it's a wonderful thing that we serve a God who is accessible and available, right? Our Heavenly Father doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play hard to get. What's important to understand is you can't impress God, and you can't disappoint Him. Because if you disappointed Him, you would have to surprise Him. You can't surprise him. He already knows what you're going to do tomorrow, right? God will never love you more than he does right now. And he will never love you less than he does right now. He never changes because he always gets it right the first time. Now, our earthly parents, right, they did some things right, some things wrong. And, of course, we as parents do the same thing with our children. Some things right, some things wrong. This uh, Israel and Judah little squabble over the king reminds us of the disciples. Remember when the disciples are arguing Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's 12 disciples. Jesus has just told them, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world, including your sins. And what are they doing? I'm going to sit closer to the throne than you will. I'm going to sit higher. My throne will be bigger. I mean, they're jockeying for a position and wanting to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, it got so bad that James and John's mother's name Salome. She comes to Jesus and she says, you know, my boys are special. 
and they need and they deserve an inside track. I want you to promise that they will sit on your right side and on your left side. I mean right next to you. Nobody closer to you, Jesus, when you're on your throne than my boys, right? Because they're special. And of course, the other 10 disciples, they just get livid. They go, those fishermen, are you kidding me? I mean, so it turns into a power politics, right? Special position, access, etc. What's important to remember is that our Heavenly Father is the dad of the prodigal son. You don't have to compete for access with your Heavenly Father. Everyone in this room has completely equal access to Almighty God. And where was the Heavenly Father when the prodigal son decided to come back home? Was he not waiting for him with open arms? Yes. Was not the Heavenly Father waiting for the prodigal son? No matter what your past has been today, God is only one prayer away. That's close. And he right now is waiting for your call. You can never bug your heavenly father with too much contact. He will never say, I just talked to you 30 seconds ago. Already? You're calling me back? You can call me back as many times as you want. And the wonderful thing about your Heavenly Father is you will never get a busy signal. And if you try an email, and you'll never get, da-na, 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 you know, like the old email when you were dial-up, you'll never get that. So the nation is jockeying for access to King David. Verse 20, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there, whose name was Sheba the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tent, so Israel, verse 2. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Here's the principle. Selfishness separates people. Because it says, my way is better than any other way. Selfishness separates people because it says, my way is better than any other way. How many of you know selfish people? Yeah, I looked in the mirror this morning. I is one of them, right? And I know my way is better. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm right. Yeah, not selfish. No, just a little selfish. So... The, the ten northern tribes in the north and the two southern tribes are now fighting with each other. And this character, Bichri, is a Benjamite, the tribe of Saul, and he sees an opportunity. And he's going to instigate a revolt against David. He's probably a leader in the army of the ten northern tribes, so he has somewhat of a following. The Bible says he's worthless. That literally means son of Belial. That means useless. It means evil. It's base character is what it means. And he blows the trumpet. Back in the day, anytime you see the word blows the trumpet, that's a form of communication. They didn't have wireless and nobody had an iPhone at that point in time. So if you're going to communicate over distances, he used a ram's horn called a shofar. And some of you have seen these shofars. Some of those things are three feet long, you know, an Ibex horn. And so you can really communicate over distances. And they had a whole set of codes, not quite like Morse code, but long and short blasts communicated different things. And so he blows this horn and gets everybody's attention. And once he has their attention, he tells them what many of them are already feeling. 
what they're afraid of is that David is going to be partial to Judah. And so they're better off without David as king. Let's just be done with this David business. As a matter of fact, Sheba says, you know something? Why don't you just follow me? Forget about David. You know, I'm the leader you should follow. So he heads up north. Israel's army abandons David and follows Sheba back to their homes in the north of Israel. But the people of Judah, they remain loyal to David. What's remarkable is how fast Israel forgot. Remember, last week, they have just finished a civil war. Less than seven days ago, they were in a battle. North and south were fighting each other, just like the civil war. Last week, 20,000 northern and southern soldiers died in the forest of Ephraim. We're talking less than seven days ago. God has made it clear through the last 20 years that David is his choice as king. And now within a week of a battle, 80% of Israel says, God, you and your choice be hanged. We're going to follow this guy. We already talked last week. The last time they made a choice for their own king, they chose who? Saul. How'd that work? Not well. And then they chose who? Absalom. How'd that work? Not well. Now they're choosing a worthless fellow named Sheba. How's that going to work? Probably not really well. Now, you know, they basically said earlier today, same day, you know, David's been a pretty good king. He's protected us. By this afternoon, they say, now we're better off without him. See, arrogance creates amnesia. You can write that one down. Arrogance creates amnesia. We've talked in this class for years that sin makes you stupid. And when you see people behaving stupidly, it's because they're following their sin. And sin separates you from God, who's the source of wisdom. So the further you get away from God, the source of wisdom, the more foolish you become. Israel is going to make a series of very foolish decisions. And selfishness almost always causes us to make foolish decisions. We've all seen, tragically, divorces that are so bitter that husband and wife will do almost anything to hurt each other, even hurt themselves. I've seen spouses so angry with each other, they're willing to bankrupt each other as opposed to settle it and walk away with something. There's an old proverb that says what? Don't cut off your nose to spite your face, right? Because when you look in the mirror, you won't, look like, you won't like what you see. So the core of selfishness is pride, and of course the cure for selfishness is humility. And neither Israel nor Judah has a great deal of humility at this point in time. Pride always says, my way is the best way because I know it all. Humility says, I don't know it all, so my way may not be the best way. I may be wrong. When's the last time you said to someone you love, I may be wrong, only to have them say, you're right. <laughs> you not may be wrong, you is wrong. <laughs> Your may better be, may be better than my way, gasp. Both Israel and Sheba are convinced that their way is better than God's way, and so David is facing another crisis. He's got another rebellion and another potential civil war in his hands. Verse 4. 
the king, David, says to Amasa, who is his general now, call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. Verse 6, And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. Here's the principles. Opportunities are time limited. Opportunities are time limited. So adjust your schedule to accomplish God's goals for your life. You adjust your schedule to accomplish God's goal for your life. I grew up on the farm. And one thing you discover very quickly on the farm is that you can't mess with the seasons. The seasons are what the seasons are. And when it is harvest time and you're an egg, you drop everything but basically eating and sleeping and you don't really do a whole lot of that because when it's harvest time, you what? You're in the field because it is time limited. It is a very specific limited opportunity. David has learned some very hard lessons from his conflict with Absalom. What he's learned, among other things, is don't delay in dealing with the problem. Don't delay in dealing with the problem. If you get a medical diagnosis that could be a problem, deal with it. Don't deny it because the tumors don't shrink just because you're in denial. Denial causes the problem to go bigger, and what David did with Absalom is hope that it would get better, and it didn't. So he's learning, I better deal with this and deal with it now. So he gives his new commander, Amasa, his first assignment. He says, call out all of military troops in Judah. And how much time did he give him? How many hours is three days? 72 hours. Is that pretty measurable? Yeah, it's pretty measurable. By the way, when you give your children an assignment, it should be pretty specific. Yes? a specific measurable assignment. David said, get the troops here and have them here within 72 hours. David understands that he's got a window, a brief window of opportunity to capture Sheba or else he's going to organize these 10 northern tribes and we got another civil war. So he says, I've got to get to this guy and neutralize him. Otherwise, we're going to have another conflict like we just had last week. And for us, I mean, it's obviously pretty clear. We all have a limited time on earth to accomplish what God put us here to do. Now, hopefully, none of you only have 72 hours left to get done what God wants you to get done. But we don't know, right? It's terribly easy to procrastinate God's priorities while we're busy pursuing our own. Say amen. amen. It's true. It's true. The truth is we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We represent King Jesus while we live in this foreign land called planet Earth. And there are an almost unlimited number of things, interesting things, good things, that can distract you from following your king. Have you noticed that Satan is not stupid? Just, just saying. Satan will never tempt you with trash. He will always tempt you with trash dressed up to look like treasure. Right? That's what Satan does. I mean, think about it. When Eve was in the Garden of Eden, what did she see? She saw fruit. Was it rotten fruit? 
Was there worms coming out of it? Was it decayed? I mean, it was, I don't know whether it was an apple or a tomato, what it was, but it says it was beautiful to look at. I'm sure it was. God made it. It was perfect fruit, smelled good, tasted good, etc. So Satan will try and take the good things that God has created and use them to try and tempt us to stop serving our king. Because he'll have us pursuing good things, just not the things that God wants us to pursue, Right? The reality is, and this is very sobering, God has a specific plan for each and every day of your life. God has an agenda that he wants you to accomplish this Sunday, September 2nd, 2018. He's got an agenda for this day for you. There is no day that God says, you know something, I don't have anything on the calendar for you today. You can just blow it off. No worries. God always has an agenda. Now, maybe his agenda is for you to be in bed recovering from a cold. I don't know. Maybe his agenda is for you to be at the beach with your family. Maybe his agenda is for you to be working. Whatever it is, God always has purpose. Sometimes that purpose is rest. Sometimes it's relaxation. Sometimes it's work. But whatever it is, how do we know what God's agenda is? We need to ask, right? We know that he has plans because Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. But if I'm going to know what his plans are for me today, I need to ask him and then pursue them. Matthew 6, 33 says what? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the stuff you know, the stuff that you value, it, the stuff will be added to you as God says you need it, right? It doesn't say, pursue the stuff first and then the kingdom of God will be added to you, right? It says, prioritize your king. Prioritize your king. Put Jesus first and foremost. God will take care of the rest of all this stuff. Unfortunately, that's not what Amasa did. Amasa was accountable to his king. David had an agenda for Amasa and said, you got 72 hours, get the troops here. Whatever the reason, did Amasa show up? Nope, he didn't make it. Not a good start. I don't know whether the Judah's troops didn't trust him because he wasn't Joab. I don't know whether he didn't take David seriously. And he goes, well, Lord, king, uh, three days, plus or minus, right? How many of you know people that have the manana complex? You know, there are some countries we visited that when they say, uh, we'll have lunch at noon, that could be anywhere between noon and four. Yeah, I'll see you when I see you. That's kind of how time operates. David's operating on a clock. He says, I got 72 hours to get this guy. And Amasa doesn't only not show up, he didn't even communicate with David. So David is getting a little paranoid about Sheba, and he knows that he's got a very limited time to neutralize him, so he calls up his nephew Abishai. Abishai's brother is Joab. Joab has just killed David's son last week, named Absalom. David fired Joab. David doesn't have anywhere else to go. He says, i got to go with a proven leader, one with a track record. So he's, David says to Abishai, Joab's brother, you got to take my troops and you got to go get this guy. And he needed to find him and neutralize him now. Otherwise, the rebellion he's going to have 
is going to be worse than Absalom's rebellion. And if he hides himself inside a walled city, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed, a long siege. Go get him and get him now. He's so serious that he sends out his own bodyguard troops to help him get the job done. Look at verse 7. So Joab's men, <clears throat> that's the troops of Israel, went out after Sheba, along with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. <clears throat> and they went out from Jerusalem but to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa shows up to meet them. Now, Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at its waist. And as he went forward, the sword fell out. Joab says to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Verse 10 is a key verse. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Verse 11. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men, and he said, Whoever favors Joab and is for David, let him follow Joab. Problem. Verse 12. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men, when the man saw that all the people stood still, the soldiers, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field, threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. Pretty gruesome, but pretty real. The Word of God always tells the truth as it is. Here's the principle. Ask God for discernment so that you will stay alert and not be caught off guard. Ask God for discernment so that you will stay alert and not be caught off guard. It is so easy to go to a sleep at the wheel of life thinking that tomorrow will be what? Just like yesterday. Because it normally is, right? Normally you wake up. How many of you have kind of a routine you follow? Some of you have a routine? Okay. Most of us have routines because we think tomorrow will be kind of like today and kind of like yesterday. So there's a continuity. But sometimes we get blindsided by the unexpected. People who you think have your back wind up stabbing you in the back. You ever read that happen? I'm sure that Amasa didn't think Joab was going to try and kill him. Or else he would have been paying closer attention. I mean, Amasa is Joab's cousin. Their mothers are sisters. This is your cousin coming up to greet you. Going to give you a brotherly kiss, right? They probably grew up playing together as kids. Being on the alert could have saved a mass's life, but keeping us spiritually alert will keep us from falling into temptation and sinning. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter, James, and John are in the garden, and uh, he's going to go to the cross, and they're tired, and they want to snooze, and he says what? Watch and pray so that what? You will not enter into temptation. Not enter into, that means fall into. Watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Sleeping at the wrong time can get you dead, right? Physically as well as spiritually. When Jesus was telling his disciples about the second coming, he says, I'm coming back. But he said, by the way, stay on the alert because I'm coming back unexpectedly. I'm coming back when no one 
is going to expect it. As a matter of fact, don't just get on the alert, but stay on the alert, because when I come back, it'll be too late to get ready. How many of you track hurricanes at all? You know, we got a hurricane season, generally runs from about June to November in the Caribbean. And uh, every season, there's generally some hurricanes, better or worse, harsher or milder, but generally some kind of hurricanes. <clears throat> when it would be a smart time to prepare for a hurricane? Before what? Before it hits. Do you generally get notice that hurricane's coming? Yeah, I mean, they, they, the weather people, they're telling you there's 100-mile-an-hour winds, you know, it's four days away, it's coming toward shore at 13 miles an hour. You kind of have a date where you know this thing may come to shore. So the smart thing to do would be prepare before it hits because once the winds are 120 miles an hour and it makes landfall and it's over your house, you're not going to prepare. You're going to react. You're going to deal with what you've been dealt with at whatever level of preparation you have. See, Amasa is not prepared at all. He shows up late, but David is very prepared. The Cherethites and the Pelethites, they're his personal bodyguard. They're foreign mercenary troops. They're the best. Joab's men are the regular Israelite troops, and the mighty men are David's champion warriors. We'll talk about them. There's 30 of them, and they are famous for their military exploits. David sends the best he's got. He's going to deal with the problem called Sheba, and Amasa is asleep at the wheel. They meet in Gibeon. Rob's going to show you a little shot of Gibeon. It's just north of Jerusalem, not too far. You're going to see that Sheba's gone way up north, and we'll come back to that. But David sends out his troops, and Amasa finally catches up with him at Gibeon. He's a little late, and Joab greets him with a kiss on the cheek, right? Just like Judas did with Jesus, kisses him on the cheek before he betrays him. And holding each other's beard apparently was a pretty common customary when greeting someone. And Amasa is definitely not paying attention. He thinks Joab is safe because he's his cousin. He thinks Joab is safe because they're finally both on the same team. They're on David's team. Remember that Amasa was Absalom's general, right? Well, Absalom's dead, and David said, Amasa, I want you to be my general. I'm going to fire Joab because he killed my son. So David appointed Amasa's general and terminated Joab as general commander. And Joab is motivated by what? He wants his old job back. He likes being commander, and his cousin took his job. You think he's motivated to get his job back? Apparently, he's willing to kill to get it back. And Amasa is viewed by Joab as a traitor. You were the general for that rebel, Absalom, who tried to kill David. So I got two counts on you, bud. You're my cousin, but... You're a traitor, and you took my job. So Joab's walking toward Amasa to greet him, and the sword falls out of his sheath. Now, it doesn't say whether this was planned or contrived or whether it just happens. That's it. Joab bends down to pick up the sword with his left hand, and he's got Amasa's beard in his right hand, and he's going to kiss him. Sound like Judas? And Amasa's eyes are looking at Joab, and Joab's pretty ambidextrous and runs him through with his sword with his left hand. And apparently only struck him once, but he must have twisted that sword around because it says he disemboweled him. I mean, everything's literally on the ground. I don't know whether Joab's left or right-handed, but he certainly knew how to handle the sword. Clearly, Amasa thought he was right-handed. 
because he had the right hand here. He wasn't watching the left hand. I mean, the spiritual lessons are pretty obvious. Be on the alert. Satan is not going to come pretending to be your enemy. He's going to come pretending to be your friend. Same with Joab, same with Amasa. So after he assassinates Amasa, Joab and Abishai immediately leave. They're pursuing Sheba. It sounds like they're pretty hot on this trail. And one of Joab's aides says, whoever favors Joab is for David, follow Joab. I mean, we've had a change of command like that. The general is now dead, and Joab's taken over his old job, and all the troops that are following Joab, I mean, they're stopping and staring. Amasa's laying there wallowing in his blood. He ain't dead yet. So it's very gruesome. It's kind of like the way drivers slow down a rubberneck a car accident. You ever driven in L.A.? You know, they go by. It's on the other side of the road. Right, it's way on the other side of the road, and they slow down to 30 miles an hour and look, and then they run into the person in front of them, create another accident. So... These troops are rubbernecking a murder. I mean, they're looking at Amasa, and Joab's aide says, you know, we got to get this body out of the road so the troops will follow Joab. So he says he pulled him off the road, covered him up, and then everybody followed Joab. A couple observations. Joab has just murdered his cousin. You think you got family problems? (laughs) Just perspective, right? He's also murdered a commanding officer in peacetime in order to get his job back. The army is loyal to Joab. They follow him. And that becomes a problem because we're going to find out David's ability to lead the army is compromised by Joab because he's not willing to deal with him. Joab doesn't get dealt with by David when David's alive, but David commands Solomon, you deal with this guy when I'm gone. And he does. So Joab and David's army are pursuing Sheba to the extreme north of Israel. Rob's going to show you a map, same map. And you're going to notice way at the top of this map is a city called Abel. It's about 90 miles north of Gilgal. Now when you're walking, you can do 15, 20 miles a day. So it's a multi-day journey up here. It's, way, it's almost out of Israel. I mean, it's right on the extreme northern border near Dan. So it's just modern day. It's just south of Lebanon. This is up there by Mount Hermon about four miles west of Dan. Apparently, Sheba's not been able to recruit enough forces to fight Joab's army, so he hides in this city. This is a fortified city with walls, etc., and Sheba goes and hides in this city. And Joab builds a siege ramp. He's going to build a ramp and take over the city by battering down the walls and going over the top. And there's a wise woman from the city who engages Joab in conversation which is interesting. Verse 18. This woman spoke saying, formerly they used to say they will surely ask advice at Abel, and thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Verse 20. Job replied, far be it, far be it for me that I should swallow up or destroy Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. She hasn't talked to anybody in the city yet about this. You're going to find out she's pretty persuasive. 
Verse 22, then the woman wisely came to all the people. Apparently she was persuasive. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it over the wall to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and the army was dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Here's the principle. Any people or plan that opposes God will ultimately fail. Any people or plan that opposes God will ultimately fail. We all can agree with that. The second one is the hard part. When and how that occurs is up to God, not to us. Many times we think God needs our help. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we say, Lord, I got some ideas for you. I'm going to prune their fingernails with a pruning shears and we'll miss a couple of digits on the way up or whatever, right? I have a little fertile imagination when it comes to this. You've thought of much worse things. Don't look down. So Sheba's fled. He's at the extreme north of Israel. He's been trying to recruit followers. He's been trying to instigate a revolt. He wants to lead that revolt. He wants to lead a succession. And he wants to form his own northern kingdom. And it appears that he's failed to attract sufficient numbers of followers, right? He's got to go hide in the city. If they had enough followers, they'd have turned and fought Joab. It's likely, however, that the 10 northern tribes of Israel, they've lost 15,000 troops last week in a battle, and they've got no appetite for more bloodshed. So they're, I mean, they're willing to leave David, but they're not willing to go to war again. But Sheba's rebellion is a precursor to what actually does happen in about 45 years. In 45 years, Solomon is going to die, and his grandson Rehoboam is going to ascend the throne of Israel. And as you recall the narrative, when he takes the throne, the 10 northern tribes send a delegation to him and say, you know, if you will treat us well, if you will lower the heavy taxes that your dad Solomon has on us, if you will reduce the slavery that you've put us under to build the temple, because there was a lot of slavery going on at that point, we will serve you. And Rehoboam says, come back to me in three days, let me think about it. And that was the only wise thing he did. So he talks to the elders of Israel and they say, how do you want me to respond to these 10 tribes? I mean, they're basically saying, we're willing to be loyal to you, but we would like some consideration. Just saying, right? We'll vote for you, but we'd like some consideration. And the elders say, look, if you treat these people well, if you treat them honestly, if you lower their burden, if you don't enslave them, if you don't raise their taxes, if you don't lord it over them, They'll serve you forever. Rehoboam's 41, old enough to be stupid. And he says, "Um, okay, let me go talk to the young people, my peer group. So he talks to the 30s, the crowd, the 30s, you know, the 25s and 30s, the ones with lots of spare testosterone and no wisdom. And they say, you tell these people that my little finger is bigger than my father's waist. If you think my father was tough and he disciplined you, I'm going to discipline you with scorpions and serpents. So Rehoboam's got a choice. What message do I give to the northern tribes? Well, he tells them, if you think my old man was tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think he disciplined you, it's going to get worse. 
So the 10 northern tribes say, hasta la vista, baby, right? And they tell David, house, the house of Judah, we have no portion in you. We're out of here. We're setting up our own kingdom, and Jeroboam's going to lead it. So what Sheba tried to do and failed, in fact, happens 45 years later, and the nation is split in two for the duration. And it didn't have to happen, but it was part of God's plan, and Rehoboam was foolish enough to generate it. So Sheba is trying to pull this secession plan off. Joab pursues him, and Joab's willing to destroy the city in order to kill Sheba and stop this rebellion. And apparently, the city of Abel is known for its wise citizens, kind of like Bakersfield. You know, it's known for its prudent and thoughtful citizens. And most of them are in manna. I see you right here, right? So this wise woman says, why would you destroy the whole city? Joab tells her, I don't want to destroy anything in Israel, but I want Sheba because he's the leader of this insurrection. And she says, well, I'll, we'll have his head tossed over the wall to you, and in fact happens, right? Joab lifts the siege, everybody goes home. And, you know, when you read this chapter, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, there's a lot of blood and guts, pardon my French. It's filled with cities under siege and rebellion and betrayal and deception and murder. I mean, you could write a, a, a Netflix series on this, right? Some probably have. People are being disemboweled and beheaded. I mean, it's bloodthirsty. But all very predictable. What did God tell David was going to happen as a result of his sin with Bathsheba? The sword will never depart from your house. There's going to be violence in your house, in your kingdom, in your family from here on out because of that. And that's tremendously sobering because David's sin is forgiven. It's forgiven. God's not trying to exact justice. God just says there's consequences to sin. Forgiven sin has consequences, right? You can be forgiven. There's still consequences. That's the part that's enormously sobering and why David's life, external life, was nothing but a heartbreak after that. Now, David's internal life, his walk with Jesus was getting better and better and stronger and stronger. He wrote some of the most profound psalms that minister to you and I in the last 20 years of his life. God used him mightily in the last 20 years of his life, even though his circumstances were disaster. And that should be terribly comforting to us because some of us look and go, Brad, I mean... I've made some decisions in the past. Are you telling me that I have to live with this stuff and there's no hope because of the, I was dumb and dumber back in the day? That's where the grace of Jesus Christ, even though there are consequences to sin, he gives us the strength to deal with it and to cope with it. And I want you to hang your hat on Romans 8.28. What does it say? And God causes all things to work together for good. Even my past sins that have consequences, God uses that to work together for good. It says where grace, where sin abounded, grace did more abound. So because we have a past that is less than optimal, because we have a past in many cases that's quite sinful and quite foolish, don't give up. Don't give up. God wants to use even our brokenness and our historical brokenness with various people, those broken relationships, to accomplish his purpose. He wants to bless us through that. 
and accomplish his eternal glory as a result of that. So do not lose heart. You know, at the end of the day, God's plan is going to be implemented. God's plan for David is real simple. You are the king of Israel. No one is going to be able to successfully dethrone you. Absalom tried. He disappeared. Sheba tried. He disappeared. Anybody who opposes God's plan will, be fa will fail. Don't get distracted by the opposition of the enemy. Our job is real simple. Stay close to Jesus. He will give us discernment about people, circumstances. He will also give us power to accomplish his purpose for today. So God has a purpose for you this week. Between now and the time we get together, Lord willing, next week, 168 hours from now, God has purpose for every hour. That's why Paul says what? Pray without ceasing. You always ask, God, what's your plan in this situation? You ever got a phone call? And you know you should pray before you speak? And you don't? Even worse, you get a text and you have time to pray before you respond? Texts are really spiritual because they give you time to think before you react. And that's time to pray. Lord, how do I respond to this? I know they're a thousand miles away and I'd like to just, dee, 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 you know, pray for wisdom. Lord, how do I respond to this? God will give us discernment. He'll also give us power and he'll give us opportunities to serve him. And we are to be alert for those opportunities. Amasa was not alert. He was not on guard. He was not paying attention to his king. And as a result, it cost him his life. We need to be staying alert for those spiritual opportunities. And we need to adjust our schedules to make sure we can fulfill God's plan for our life for that day. Let's summarize. Here's principle number one. God does not play favorites. All of God's children have equal access to the King of Kings. I don't care what your heritage, your parentage is. I don't care what you've done in the past or what you're going to do in the future. We all have equal access to the King of Kings. Number two, separation, selfishness always separates people because it says my way is better than any other way. People don't want to be around people who always have to be right because it means they always have to be wrong, right? Number three, opportunities are time-limited. So adjust your schedule to accomplish God's goals for your life. Number four, ask God for discernment so that you will stay alert to whatever the circumstances are and not be caught off guard. We've all been blindsided by situations and people. How many have ever had a situation where you said the next morning, I should have said da 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 right? We've all had that. And number five, any people or plan that opposes God will ultimately fail... God's job is to deal with that. When and how that occurs is up to God, not to us. I do love you. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.